Well, thank you very much, and good evening. I want to begin by thanking our hosts for the invitation to participate in tonight's debate. And I also want to say what a privilege it is to be sharing the podium this evening with Dr. Williamson. We were on the John Gormley show earlier today and had a great time, and I found that not only is he a very good thinker, but also a very nice guy. And so I'm glad to be uh, sharing the podium with him tonight. And I hope that our discussion will be a practical help to you in your own personal thinking about this most important subject. Now, in order to answer the question, does God exist?, we've got to ask ourselves two further questions. First, what reasons are there to think that God exists? And secondly, what reasons are there to think that God does not exist? Accordingly, in tonight's debate, I'm going to defend two basic contentions. First, there is no good reason to think that God does not exist. And secondly, there are good reasons to think that God exists. Consider then my first contention, that there's no good reason to think that God does not exist. I'll leave it up to Dr. Williamson to present arguments against God's existence, and then I'll respond to them in my next speech. I simply note in passing that if he is to justify a negative answer to the question before us this evening, then he owes us such arguments. So let's turn then to my second contention, that there are good reasons to think that God exists. Let me briefly sketch just some of these reasons. First, God is the best explanation of the origin of the universe. Have you ever asked yourself where the universe came from? Why everything exists instead of just nothing? Well, typically, atheists have said that the universe is just eternal and uncaused, and that's all. But there are good reasons, both philosophically and scientifically, to doubt that this is the case. Philosophically, the idea of an infinite past seems absurd. If the universe never had a beginning, that means that the number of past events in the history of the universe is infinite. But mathematicians recognize that the existence of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. For example, what is infinity minus infinity? Well, mathematically, you get self-contradictory answers. This shows that infinity is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. Now, I've heard through the grapevine that Dr. Williamson thinks that his sister has an actual infinitude of junk in her basement. Um, but if she's philosophically astute, she can turn back that, back that brotherly aspersion. David Hilbert, who is perhaps the greatest mathematician of the 20th century, states that the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality, not even in Williamson's basement. It neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. But that entails that since past events are not just ideas but are real, the number of past events must be finite. Therefore, the series of events can't just go back and back forever. Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. This conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. 
in one of the most startling developments of modern science, we now have pretty strong evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning about 13 billion years ago in a cataclysmic event known as the Big Bang. What makes the Big Bang so startling is that it represents the origin of the universe from literally nothing. For all matter and energy, even physical space and time themselves, came into being at the Big Bang. As the physicist Paul Davies explains, the coming into being of the universe, as discussed in modern science, is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. Now, of course, alternative theories have been proposed over the years to try to avoid this absolute beginning, but none of these theories has commended itself to the scientific community as more plausible than the Big Bang Theory. In fact, in 2003, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin were able to prove that any universe, which is on average in a state of cosmic expansion, cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. Vilenkin pulls no punches. He writes, It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. That problem was nicely captured by Anthony Kenny of Oxford University. He writes, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely that doesn't make sense. For as the uh, philosopher of science, Baron of Konigscheider, points out, such a conclusion is in head-on collision with the most successful ontological commitment in the history of science, namely the metaphysical principle that out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? Where did it come from? There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. We can summarize our argument thus far as follows. One, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, as the cause of space and time, this cause must be an uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial being of unfathomable power. Moreover, it must be personal as well. Why? Because this cause must be beyond space and time. Therefore, it cannot be physical or material. Now, there are only two kinds of things that fit that description. Either abstract objects, like numbers, or else a transcendent intelligent mind. But abstract objects can't cause anything. Therefore, it follows that the cause of the universe is a transcendent personal mind. Number two, God is the best explanation of the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. 
In recent decades, scientists have been stunned by the discovery that our universe appears to be fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life with a precision and delicacy that literally defy human comprehension. For example, if the force of gravity or the atomic weak force had been altered by as little as one part out of 10 to the 100th power, the universe would not have been life-permitting. Now, there are only three possible explanations of this extraordinary fine-tuning, either physical necessity, chance, or design. Now, it can't be due to physical necessity because the constants and quantities in question are independent of the laws of nature. In fact, string theory predicts that there are 10 to the 500th power different possible universes compatible with nature's laws. So could the fine-tuning be due to chance? Well, the problem with this alternative is that the possibility that all the constants and quantities would fall by chance alone into the life-permitting range is vanishingly small. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are incomprehensibly more probable than any life-permitting universe. So if the universe were the product of chance, the odds are overwhelming that the universe would be life-prohibiting. In order to rescue the alternative of chance, atheists have therefore been forced to the extraordinary hypothesis that there exist an infinite number of randomly ordered universes composing a sort of world ensemble or multiverse of which our universe is but a part. Somewhere in this infinite world ensemble, finely tuned universes will appear by chance alone, and we happen to be one such world. There are, however, at least two major failings with the world ensemble hypothesis. First, there's no evidence that such a world ensemble exists. There's no evidence that there even are other universes, much less that they are randomly ordered and infinite. Secondly, if our universe is just a random member of a world ensemble, then it's overwhelmingly more probable that we should be observing a much smaller universe. Roger Penrose of Oxford University has calculated that it is inconceivably more probable that our solar system should form by a random collision of particles than that a finely tuned universe should exist. Penrose calls it utter chicken feed by comparison. So if our universe were just a random member of a world ensemble, it is inconceivably more probable that we should be observing a universe no larger than our solar system. Observable universes like that are just much more plenteous in the world ensemble than worlds like ours, and therefore ought to be observed by us. Since we do not have such observations, that fact strongly disconfirms the multiverse hypothesis. On atheism, at least, it is therefore highly probable that no world ensemble exists. Thus, the last ring of defense of the alternative of chance collapses. So, we may argue as follows. One, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Two, it is not due to either physical necessity or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. 
Thus, the fine-tuning of the universe points to the existence of a supernatural designer of the cosmos. Number three, God is the best explanation of objective moral values in the world. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. By objective moral values, I mean moral values which are valid and binding, whether anybody believes in them or not. Many theists and atheists alike agree that if God does not exist, then moral values are not objective in that way. For example, Michael Roos, a noted philosopher of science, explains, the position of the modern evolutionist is that morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Like Professor Roos, I just don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the morality evolved by Homo sapiens is objective. On the atheistic view, some actions, say rape, may not be socially advantageous, and so in the course of human development has become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong with your raping someone. But the problem is that objective values do exist, and deep down I think we all know it. There is no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Actions like rape, cruelty, and child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Even Michael Roos himself admits, the man who says it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says two plus two equals five. Similarly, love, equality, and self-sacrifice are really good. Hence, our argument may be summarized as follows. One, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Two, objective values do exist, from which it follows logically and inescapably that three, therefore, God exists. Number four, the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus imply God's existence. The historical person Jesus of Nazareth was a remarkable individual. Historians have reached something of a consensus that Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come, and as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now, most people would probably think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just believe in by faith or not. But in fact, there are actually three established facts 
recognized by the majority of historians today, which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one, on the Sunday morning after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist in the study of the resurrection narratives, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent New Testament critic Gerald Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death, in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Fact number three. The original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah. And Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples suddenly came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. N.T. Wright, an eminent British New Testament scholar, concludes, That is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciples stole the body or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there just is no plausible naturalistic explanation of these facts. Therefore, it seems to me the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. But that entails that God exists. Thus, we have a good inductive argument for the existence of God based on the resurrection of Jesus. One, there are three established facts about Jesus, the discovery of his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of disciples' belief in his resurrection. Two, the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead is the best explanation of these facts. Three, the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead entails that the God revealed by Jesus exists. Four, Therefore, the God revealed by Jesus exists. Finally, number five, God can be immediately known and experienced. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists uh, wholly apart from arguments, simply by immediately experiencing him. This was the way that people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hick explains, God was known to them as a dynamic will, interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality, as inescapably to be reckoned with as destructive storm and life-giving sunshine. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experienced reality which gave significance to their lives. Now, if this is the case, there's a danger that arguments for God could actually distract our attention from God himself. If you're sincerely seeking God, God will make his existence evident to you. The Bible promises 
Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We mustn't so concentrate on the arguments that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. For those who listen, God becomes an immediate reality in their lives. In conclusion, then, we've seen five reasons to think that God exists. If Dr. Williamson wants us to believe that God does not exist, then he must first tear down all five of the reasons that I presented in favor of God's existence and then in their place erect a case of his own to prove that God does not exist. Unless and until he does that, I think that theism is the more rational worldview. Well, good evening. Thanks for having me. In this fine old hall with all of you gathered here, I kind of wish I had something more exciting to say, but this is philosophy after all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, um, I'm going to argue for the atheist position tonight, and I'm afraid I'm going to stray from uh, Dr. Craig's suggestion that I first tear down his arguments. I'm going to try and start off with a little bit of my own first, a little bit of building up of the atheist position. So, I've titled my talk, The Irrelevance of Religion, and I'll get on to explaining what that means in a minute here. Now, there's two positions that have become standard to describe for the atheist position. One is what's called positive atheism, and that assumes that the atheist actually believes that there is no God. In other words, the atheist is actually making a positive claim about the way things work in the world. There's another position called negative atheism, which simply poses the problem as a lack of belief. Atheists lack belief in deities. And by contrast, this poses no claim whatsoever, except for the claims that you don't happen to have a certain belief. Now, Dr. Craig has said in print that there are no good arguments for the atheist position. And I think I'd like to try and show you why that is in just a second. And also I'd like to try and establish some, well, The burden of proof is the name of the issue in philosophy. It's a question of who owes us an explanation and what's going to count as a proof here. So the positive atheist position. What are we looking at in, how would we go about trying to prove the positive atheist position? Well, let me point out the claim there is no God is what we call an unrestricted negative. That is, there's no specific area in which you're being told you have to demonstrate this for. For example, I could try and prove to you that there's no elephant in this room right now, but I doubt I could prove to you that there are no elephants, period. So the atheist is pictured here as trying to prove that there is no God. Now, the problem I see with that is that if I were to demonstrate somehow that God doesn't happen to exist in this solar system, somebody could immediately come back and say, oh, but perhaps he's over there in Alpha Centauri. And if I managed to get to Alpha Centauri and show that there was no God there, well, there's another solar system down the line. Now, the problem is that in order to prove a negative like that, I'm going to have to be omniscient. I'm going to have to be able to account for all of the possible places that this being God could possibly exist in order to demonstrate that he doesn't. So the long and the short of it is, in order to prove God does not exist, I'd effectively have to prove that I am God, since I would be the omniscient being doing this proving. Now that's too high a demand, and I don't think any atheist really wants to become God by doing this. 
Now, if Dr. Craig suggests that there are no good arguments for atheism, well, here's a reason. There's no good arguments for positive atheism, certainly, because it looks like those arguments simply couldn't be given to begin with. Now, what about negative atheism? Of course, the situation is different there. Um, all we're really committed to with negative atheism is, in fact, that we're open to argument, we're willing to consider whatever evidence is given and reply to that, or be willing to change our minds. Now that's effectively what we're up to here tonight. So in terms of the burden of the proof issue, let me point out, it seems like it would be impossible to prove that there is no God. It seems like if we were to start out with claims, um, the person making a claim is typically the one held to owe us some kind of a reason why they think that's true. The theist seems to be in that position. If the theist claims God exists, well, we need a reason why that should be so. Now, given that it doesn't seem like there, it's possible to give an argument against God's existence, it doesn't seem likely that we should quibble about who owes what kind of burden of proof. Um, Pretty clearly, we owe some. It's simpler to simply examine the proofs for God's existence that we have and try and determine what they actually come down to. So I think of ne negative atheism as kind of a minimum condition here. It's not necessarily something that any atheist believes, but what it does is establish some boundaries for what we have to prove. The theist. Anyone giving us a, a positive claim, like the theist, needs to give us some kind of a reason. And if we find that reason to be good, or if we can't think of any reasons against it, then we should be willing to change our mind about that. Now, I want to add a personal note in here about this. Uh, this is the reason for, my for the title of my talk about the irrelevance of religion. Um, as far as I'm concerned, or let me put, the, put it this way, I, I encounter the view quite frequently that the atheist must be bound up with the question of religion as much as the theist is. In other words, we're committed to war upon each other and we're both going vigorously head to head. I think of atheist as something quite uh, sorry, atheism as something quite different. To be an atheist is to be committed to living an entirely this worldly life. So I, in my thinking, in my daily practices, I have no room or I have no role for the supernatural or the transcendent. Essentially, religion is irrelevant to my life, and that's how I like to live it. Now, having said that there are no, might be no good arguments for, for, the, for the claim that God does not exist, there is a special case of claim that might, might allow us to make arguments against this thing. And let me try... Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, start over again. What did I do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it. The punishment has already begun. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to try and give you some arguments for positive, positive atheism tonight. And I'm going to start out with the incoherence of the concept of God and follow that up with the problem of evil. Now, I think I probably better pick up the pace here because I've got a fair bit to scroll through. Through uh, Incoherence arguments. Well, the concept could be held to be incoherent if it simply doesn't 
adhere together. In other words, the parts that we have in the concept, the basic ideas, simply don't fit together in a way that allows us to determine that this is a val valid concept. So it doesn't allow us to determine what we're talking about. So the problem here for the incoherence of a concept is either what we're talking about cannot exist because it's completely incoherent, it, it involves a contradiction or inconsistency, or it's actually unclear what it would mean to be talking about this thing in the first place. Let me give you a couple of sample run-throughs here. Concepts can be vague. In other words, they could leave clear, unclear how exactly we know what we're talking about, um, how exactly we'd find one of these things. Now, let me suggest to you, if I were to ask you to go find me a newt pick in the next room, and I gave you the criteria that this thing was existing and blue, do you think you could go and find it? Would you have a, the least clue what you were looking for? Well, existing kind of, that identifies absolutely everything that you might possibly find. And you might get lucky and there only be one blue thing in the next room, but that would be a pretty big chance. On the strength of that information, my concept of blue, sorry, my concept of Udpik is actually completely vague. It doesn't allow us to identify what the heck I'm talking about there. Let me suggest some things about our concept of God. If you take a look, take a look at a large number of the attributes that we give to God, God's being all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, non-spatial, immaterial, eternal, these concepts render out to be saying something about the absence of limits. In other words, we have an ordinary, everyday concept of power, while God, being all-powerful, blows the limits off, off the concept of power that we have. God is powerful without limit. Same goes for all-knowing and all-good. We seem to be talking not about something specific, but rather about the absence of limits on an idea that we understand from a, a different context, perhaps. Uh, Non-spatial, no spatial limits. Immaterial, something that's not material. And eternal, something that's not limited in time. Now, if you run through and you think about what's being picked out by these attributes that make up part of the definition of God, or part of our concept of God, you realize they're pretty close to nothing. Because if you try and specify what a non-spatial thing is, well, we're overwhelmingly spatial. It's going to be very difficult to conceptualize what we're talking about there. If we're talking about power without limits, well, it's not the strongest man you happen to know, and it's not the gorilla that's stronger than him, and it's not, etc., etc. It's not Godzilla or King Kong or anything like that. In fact, there's no specific something or other that we, we could be talking about there. It's power without limit. Now, I'd like to suggest that the way these attributes come out is it suggests that our concept of God is actually quite vague. We may not be able to tell God from absolutely nothing at all. Now, I mentioned another way of doing this. It might be that our concepts contain contradictory notions, such that they couldn't possibly be true at the same time, and therefore our concept um, describes an impossible object. Now, the classic example of this is the square circle. A square circle would have to have both straight sides and curved sides, and when you try and think about how exactly they fit together, you realize this just isn't going to go. So when we have a situation like this with a given concept, we're looking at an impossible object, something that couldn't possibly exist. Now let me suggest some things about the nature of God. There's a large number of issues like this. I'm going to only run you through a couple here. Um, 
Omniscience. Perfect knowledge. Now that seems to imply that if there's anything that could possibly count as knowledge, God would have to have that. Now, certainly anything that a human being could possibly know would have to be something God would know, since we're miserable, finite, created little creatures, and God, of course, has all this perfect knowledge. Now, I'd like to ask, could God know how to make a slap shot? And let me make a distinction here. There might be a series of propositions or statements about how you go about making a, a, a slap shot. That's not the kind of knowledge I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the knowledge that Bobby Orr maybe had. I'm thinking about the, the knowledge that is embodied in how exactly you go about making it. In other words, skillful knowledge. The knowledge that all of us have about doing a wide variety of physical actions all, all day long. Now, God can't have that kind of knowledge unless he has a body. And it's typically thought of that, well, well, bodies are limited in space. I start and end at these points here. Well, if that's the case, then God is non-spatial. God couldn't possibly have this kind of knowledge because God is not embodied. In other words, the skills that we have as ordinary human beings, the knowledge that we have about how to do everyday tasks, is something that God couldn't have. Now, can God know the feeling of lust? Well, the problem is that God is morally perfect according to the story. And if that's the case, then not only should God not do wrong things, it would be much better if you can imagine two different situations here. Uh, you can imagine me doing something that's the right thing and really resenting it, not liking doing it much. And you can imagine me doing the right thing and actually liking to do the right thing. Now, it's pretty clear that liking to do the right thing as well as doing the right thing is a much more superior morally position, um, and God should have that. So, strictly speaking, God should not be able to be acquainted with the feeling of lust. Now, once again, I'm not talking about him just knowing what the word means here. I'm talking about him knowing from direct experience what lust is, something that almost every human being, I should imagine, has some experience with. We all know what lust is. God couldn't. Can God know fear or despair? Well, the trouble with fear or despair is that uh, when I'm fearing, when I'm despairing, I'm concerned about my lack of power in the cosmos to protect myself or to ensure good things come about for me. Now, if God's all-powerful, God should never be in the position to feel fear. So once again, it's not propositional knowledge we're talking about. It's not the fact of what fear is. It's the direct acquaintance we have with the sweaty palms and the shaking and that sort of thing when we're terrified. Now... That leads us to some things that clearly human beings do have knowledge of and God couldn't, according to the standard concept. These are incompatibilities between God's knowledge and his incorporeality, uh, moral perfection, and his all-powerfulness. But now, any Christian in this audience right now is thinking, hold on, buddy, what about Jesus? Because Jesus lived as a man, suffered the torments of being a human being, and etc., etc. So goes the story. Well, what about Jesus then? Well, is Jesus identical to God? Now, I realize this is probably quite a difficult theological question, and I should probably keep my nose out of it. But let me, let me suggest this to you Jesus was spatial, but God must be non spatial. Jesus was material, but God must be immaterial. Jesus was temporal. He lived some 33 years, began and ended in time. God's eternal. 
Jesus was finite, God is infinite. And Jesus was limited, and God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. Could Jesus and God be the same person? Well, it looks like Jesus ought to be an impossible object and could not exist. Um, the historical evidence beside the point. Um, okay, I think I'm running out of time pretty badly here. So you get what my point is. If we have these ideas built into the concept of God, they don't fit together very well. And if that's the case, then it seems like we just might be talking about an impossible object, something that couldn't ever exist. Now I'm going to skip on quite quickly here. Um, yeah, I'm going to skip over that. I'll come back to that maybe later. Maybe later. I think everybody probably has a first glimpse of the problem of evil. If God's all-powerful, he really should be able to do something about evil. If God is all-knowing, he knows what to do about evil. And if God's all-good, then he should want to do something about evil. But take a look around the world, evil all over the place. So the problem of evil looks like it's a contradiction between the existence of evil and God's attributes, once again, suggesting that we're looking at another impossible object, or another version of the impossible object. Now, there's some assumptions that we have in, in this. Uh, one would be that something that's omniscient can do practical impossibilities, anything that would break a law of nature or call upon energy that's not available, but can't do logical impossibilities. Um, an omnibenevolent or an all-good God should wish to seek to eliminate evil to whatever extent is possible within his power, and of course God's power is unlimited. And of course evil, we make a distinction typically between moral evil, which is that done by free agents, and natural evil, which results from natural causes. Now, I probably don't have time for everything I'd like to say here, so I'm going to try and give you one short and sweet argument, better be short. Um, there's two typical solutions that seem to be very much favored for, for solving the problem of evil, that is getting God off the hook for the evil in the world. One is the soul-making theodicy, and that supposes that God must allow natural evil specifically so that human beings can develop develop good characters or can develop moral qualities like compassion. You've probably heard about the things that build character. Well, they're usually all awful. So we have suffering in the world in order that we may build moral character into human beings. Free will, God allows free moral agency into the universe, but the cost of that is some evil choices on the part of these free beings. You don't get to control what happens to free beings, so the story goes, and therefore they're going to make some evil choices sometime. A lot of the evil pretty clearly is, is blamed on human beings. Now the general form of these, uh, these theodicies is that God has a valid reason for evil because it's necessary for some good that we're trying to produce here. Let me give you a quick argument against this. If evil is necessary for some good, and that's how we have to do this, then it seems like that it's going to be inevitable that there's going to be some suffering caused in this process. And chances are pretty good also that somebody is going to be killed as a result of it. The natural forces that are building our character also smash people out of existence in volcanoes, bridge collapses, etc., etc. Now, one way or another, 
If the person was killed did not benefit from this, if the good didn't come about in their person, somebody else might benefit. I might grow moral character at seeing my friend killed in a terrible crash of some sort. Now, essentially this comes down to saying that God must use one's person's suffering for the good of another person. But I want to draw your attention to a fairly standard moral idea. It's not exactly written down in any serious textbook anywhere, but it's a pretty well, pretty good home truth. Most of us would accept the idea that it's really a bad idea to be using one person's suffering for the good of another. You don't get to torture a baby in order to, to make me feel good about things. So the principle either applies to God or it doesn't. The principle of not not bringing about good through other people's suffering. Either way you look at it, God is not perfectly moral, either because he's exempt from an important moral principle, that's a limit on his morality, or he uses persons for other people's benefit and actually breaks that principle. Hence, solutions of this type actually tacitly deny God's benevolence. This solution can only work at the cost of sort of sneakily not admitting that God's as, as moral as we claim he is. Okay, I, I guess I'm at the end of this. I really wanted to keep going forever, but oh well. Oh, one last thing. I want to offer up an atheist prayer for you. Thank God I'm an atheist. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you. Well, I think that last slide illustrates poignantly the dilemma of atheism. Uh, in moments of gratitude and thankfulness for, for life, there's no one to thank. Uh, whereas as a Christian theist, at least you can consistently thank God for the, the good things in life that we enjoy. Now, I said tonight I'm going to defend two basic contentions. First, that there's no good reason to think atheism is true. And then secondly, that there are good reasons to think that theism is true. Now, as I listened to Dr. Williamson's speech, I basically heard three arguments presented uh, in defense of atheism. First was that negative atheism requires no proof. Negative atheism is simply the absence of belief in God. I want to submit to you that negative atheism is really just a misnomer. Uh, atheism is what he calls positive atheism. The Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is a standard reference work in our field, says, according to the most usual definition, an atheist is a person who maintains that there is no God. That is, that the sentence, God exists, expresses a false proposition. So atheism just is the view, there is no God. What he calls negative atheism is really more accurately called non-theism. But you see, non-theism isn't a view. It's not a single view. There are all sorts of non-theists. For example, a non-theist might be your traditional atheist who thinks there is no God. But a non-theist might be an agnostic who doesn't know whether there's a God or not. Or he might be a verificationist who thinks the whole question of God's existence is meaningless. And therefore, to answer tonight's question in the negative, does God exist, to say no, Dr. Williamson needs to defend traditional, good old-fashioned atheism. Now he says, but you can't defend positive atheism because you can't prove a universal negative. 
Well, yes, you can. Uh, all you have to do is show that the concept involves a self-contradiction. And it's ironic that he went on to do that in his very next objection, trying to show that the concept of God is internally contradictory. So we'll have to see in a moment whether he succeeded at that. But there is a burden of proof that the atheist needs to bear if he's to convince us that there is no God. Now, Dr. Williamson also said in this connection that atheism is a practical affair. It means just living as though religion is irrelevant. Well, again, that's not atheism, because sadly, too many theists live that way. What that is is secularism or nominalism. And the fact that people espouse belief in God but then live as though he's irrelevant is one of the... uh, uh, plagues, I think, of our contemporary culture. So uh, atheism is a view. It is a philosophical view. It is the view that God does not exist. That is a positive claim to knowledge and therefore requires justification. Secondly, he argued, there is uh, incoherence in theism. Uh, the negativity of God's attributes or the self-contradictory nature of God's attributes show that God does not exist. I think quite to the contrary, the concept of God is quite coherent, and here I think that the critique of atheism has actually been very helpful to Christian philosophers, because critiques of atheists, like Dr. Williamson, have helped Christian theists to define the attributes of God more precisely so as to craft a coherent definition and concept of God. So, for example, take all of those attributes that he claimed uh, need to be simply negatively defined, and I will give you better definitions for them. First, what does it mean to say that God is all-powerful? Well, to say that God is all-powerful means that God is able to do anything that it is logically possible for him to do. That's not a negative definition. What does it mean to say God is all-knowing? For a being to be all-knowing, that means that for any proposition P, that S knows that P and does not believe not P. In other words, it means for uh, S to be omniscient is for S to believe or to know only in all truths. That's what it means to be omniscient. What does it mean to be all good? Well, uh, S, a person S is all good if S is the paradigm of all moral value. Uh, Just as the meter rod uh, in Paris was the paradigm of what it means to be a meter, God is the paradigm of moral goodness. It is defined in terms of his nature. What does it mean to say God is non-spatial? Well, S is non-spatial if S exists outside the four-dimensional space-time continuum. What does it mean to say that S is immaterial? It means that S is a mind without a body, at least in God's case. Uh, What does it mean to say that God is eternal? Well, this means that God, S, exists outside the four-dimensional space-time continuum. So those are all, I think, coherent attributes of God and leaves us with a quite positive concept of God. Now, what about omniscience? He said... Uh, omniscience leads to difficulties with respect to God's experiential knowledge of lust, for example. Well, the problem is that omniscience is defined propositionally. It's defined in terms of propositional knowledge. Remember I said that to be omniscient is for any proposition P to believe that P and not believe not P. In other words, to believe only in all true propositions. So he, he admits in his speech that he's not talking here 
about propositional knowledge. He admits God could have all the propositional knowledge there is about how to make a good slap shot, what lust is like, and so forth. But he thinks God has to have non-propositional knowledge. But that's never been the Christian concept or the classical theistic concept of God. Omniscience means God has all propositional knowledge, and Dr. Williamson admits that's coherent. So he's really just attacking a straw man here. If you're interested in reading more about this very interesting debate in philosophy of religion, I'd encourage you to look at my and J.P. Moreland's book, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, in which we have two chapters dedicated to a philosophical analysis of the principal attributes of God, including these, but several others as well. Finally, what about Jesus? He says Jesus cannot be identical with God because they have contradictory attributes. The classical Christian response to this is that Jesus of Nazareth uh, has two natures. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. So he is omnipotent with respect to his divine nature, but he is limited in power with respect to his human nature. He is uh, omniscient with respect to the divine nature, but he is limited in knowledge with respect to his human nature. So that attributes are predicated of the person of Christ need to be differentiated with respect to which nature you're speaking of, his divine or his human nature, because the incarnate Christ has two natures. And again, if you're interested in a wonderful philosophical analysis of this, look at Tom Morris's book, The Logic of God Incarnate, in which he shows that the classical doctrine of the incarnation is perfectly coherent logically. So I'm persuaded that these arguments against the coherence of theism are actually quite fallacious and in fact helpful to the Christian theist in framing an accurate concept of God. The third objection that Dr. Williamson raised in his opening speech was the problem of evil. How can God exist and there be evil in the world? Let me suggest that there are two key assumptions that Dr. Williams makes that I think are plausibly false. The first assumption is that if God is all-powerful, then he can create any world that he wants. It seems to me that that is plausibly false. If God freely creates a persons who have freedom of the will, then he cannot guarantee that they will always do what is right. It is logically impossible to make someone freely choose something. That is as logically impossible as making a square circle or a married bachelor. And God's being all-powerful doesn't mean he has the ability to do the logically impossible. So the atheist would have to prove that there's a world of free creatures that God could have made which has as much good as this world, but without as much evil. But how could the atheist possibly prove such a thing? It's just pure speculation. The second assumption that I think uh, Dr. Williamson makes that is probably false is that if God is all good, he would want to create a world without evil. I don't see any reason to think that's necessarily true. Now, certainly God does want the best for us, but... What is the best for us? We just sort of naturally assume that if God exists, then his purpose is to make us happy in this life. But on the Christian view, that's false. The purpose of life is not happiness as such, but rather to come to the personal knowledge of God. And many evils happen in life which may be utterly pointless, with respect to producing human happiness, but they may not be pointless with respect to producing a deeper knowledge of God. It's possible 
that only in a world suffused with natural and moral evils that the maximum number of persons would freely come to know God and his salvation and so find eternal life. So the atheist would have to prove that there's another world that God could have made which has as much knowledge of God and his salvation as this world, but with less evils. And how could the atheist possibly prove such a thing? Again, it's pure speculation. There's no way to prove such things. And I think that's why the problem of evil has been largely dismissed by uh, philosophers of religion today. So I see none of these three objections as... uh, Uh, as potent reasons to believe in atheism. That leaves us then again with my five reasons to believe that God exists, which I'd like to just review again for you quickly. Number one, there is the cosmological argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a transcendent cause beyond time and space. The teleological argument, uh, that the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. It isn't due to physical necessity or chance. Therefore, it's due to design. The moral argument, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist, but objective moral values do exist, and therefore it follows that God exists. And then the resurrection of Jesus, again, we saw the three facts that are recognized by the majority of historians today. Uh, Secondly, that the best explanation of these is the hypothesis that the disciples gave. Uh, That hypothesis entails that God exists, and therefore it follows that God exists. And finally, the last point is simply the immediate experience of God. I have experienced God uh, through my relationship with Jesus Christ. I wasn't raised in a Christian home or even a church-going family, but as a teenager, uh, um, my life was turned upside down when I came to know God through uh, a conversion experience. And God is real to me in my experience, and in the absence of some defeater of that, in the absence of some reason to think that, that I'm deluded, or deranged, I'm perfectly within my rights in believing in God on the basis of experience. Uh, And therefore, it seems to me, we have sound reasons for believing that God exists. Thank you. Well, it seems I've got a bit of work to catch up on. Um, Okay, well, let me start out by going back to the topic of positive versus negative atheism. Um... Dr. Craig suggested that, as I construed it, negative atheism wasn't a view, and indeed that my notion of the irrelevance of of religion to an atheist's life is not really a position. I'm not particularly bothered by that. I don't think I specified that it was a view. Whatever a view might be, I'm not sure that there are clear criteria for what counts as a view here. Though I assume he has something in mind like a worldview or an outlook on life or something like that. It seems to me atheism actually embraces a rather wide group of people who don't have a whole lot in common. Consider, for example, Buddhists. Buddhist is a non-theistic religion because they don't have a godhead in in their concept. Um, Some people believe purely in science and are atheists because there's no room for God in science. There's a lot of us out there, and I don't think we necessarily have all that much in common. The truth of the matter is that it doesn't bother me very much at all. As far as I'm concerned, like I suggested in my burden of proof speech, this is really about whether or not we have a good reason to believe in theism. And hence, that's what I typically focus on. Now, I'm not going to try and address all of um, 
Dr. Craig's arguments that he's given us. Perhaps I'll save some of those up for the question and answer period. Um, but let me make a few replies to some of the things he's also said about some of my arguments. Now, there was this issue about what omniscience meant, and Dr. Craig wants to restrict omniscience to propositional knowledge. In other words, anything that can be formed in a sentence that can be judged true or false. Now, I'd have to reply to that that it's awfully convenient to limit omniscience just to that. But if you recall my claim, my claim was that God at least ought to have as much knowledge and every bit of knowledge as his finite creations, that is, us have. And as I pointed out, clearly we have something called procedural knowledge, the skillful knowledge of how you make a slapshot. We have knowledge by acquaintance of um, interstates of, of our bodily awareness, like lust or fear, etc., etc. Now, what I'd like to suggest about that is, well, in the first place, this knowledge of, uh, by acquaintance, propositional knowledge, procedural knowledge, that's not a figment of my imagination. Those are some standard distinctions within philosophy. And if we're going to talk about what's omniscient, what is the most perfect knowledge, it seems to me not unreasonable to be expect that to be a part of it. Now, I'd also like to reassert that something, something that a human being has knowledge of also ought to be something that an omniscient being has knowledge of. And, and as Dr. Craig hasn't replied um, to it, my suggestions that God can't have. In fact, he seems to have confirmed those. Now, I'd like to worry about Jesus' two natures once again. I suggested that it looks like the attributes of God and the attributes of Jesus as a man cannot go together. I think that's actually confirmed in Dr. Craig's claim that Jesus has two natures. Obviously, two natures that are absolutely incompatible. Jesus and God cannot be the same thing. So, I, I mean, that's what I make of two natures. If Dr. Craig has a better account of that, well, that'd be fine. I'd love to hear it. But as far as I can see, saying that something has two natures simply says it has two incompatible something, or that we're talking about two incompatible something or others, Perhaps it's Jesus and God in this case, and they cannot possibly be identical. Okay. Now, I'm quite baffled by his remarks on my argument um, about, about uh, the problem of evil, the assumptions I suggested for it. Um, I'm not clear about why he would suggest that God cannot create just any old world he wants. Assuming that there is no logical contradiction in this, and I'd have to tell you, I don't see any logical contradiction between a free being making all good choices. This would seem to be God, would it not? After all, what is God's moral perfection and freedom come to but a free being making all good choices? And if you don't like that, what about the story about angels? Oh, except there's that guy who fell. Okay, maybe not that. Anyway... Think about our course of development through this life. We're expected to develop morally. And it seems to me a reasonable suggestion that moral development would consist something like this. I make ten cho cho choices a day, and I start out making five of them evil. Preferably, as I move forward in time, the evil choices I make should be narrowing down to less and less as possible. Now, if there is a logical incompatibility between free choices and there being all good choices, then we're heading for an impossible goal. 
Because theoretically, somewhere down the line, I should be able to make all good choices and yet still be a free being in the course of moral development, which seems to be, well, what, what's a basic claim about what we're doing here? Now, if that's the case, then there's something really basically perverse about the idea that God is expecting us to develop morally. Because when we get to the final stage, just as what we're about to achieve moral perfection and become the free being that I always choose as good, we're stymied because it's an incompatibility. It's a logical impossibility. Now, that, that can't make sense. Surely there's something else in the picture. I don't see any logical contradiction in the idea of a free being that always chooses good, and therefore that is something God could have created and should have if he wished to have, a, if he wished to have as much good in the world as possible. Now, I didn't say anything about him making us happy or having a world with no evil in it. What I suggested is that God ought to eliminate evil as much as possible. And it seems quite likely that there's a bit more evil in the world than really is accountable by any theodicy. Building character is a wonderful thing, and it very likely does take some evil to do it. But there's a certain point after I've seen pointless evil time and time and again that my compassion just gives out. Some of us will eventually just say, evil's the way it is, who cares? Screw existence because there's nothing else to it. There's no possible good, good out of this. Well, evil, if that's the course for evil, do we have a good reason to think that having the amount of evil we have in it today is more likely to develop compassion rather than to develop indifference or cynicism? Because evil obviously does both. And I'm not convinced that it's a clear cut it's it's clear cut that we get more that out of the amount of evil we have we actually get more um, more moral compassion now I'm running out of time once again uh, oh heavens heavens why didn't God make me less long-winded why not anyway <laughs> I'd like to go back to at least a couple of dr. Craig's arguments the cosmic calamity argument, Craig's cosmic calamity. Um, this was the argument where we started with all things having a beginning, or, or everything that begins must have a cause. Uh, the universe began to exist, and therefore the universe has a cause. Now, there's some things that bother me about this. Um, I, I might as well confess right away, I'm only an armchair scientist. I love to read about science. I read as widely as I possibly can, given my time constraints. Am I an expert? Not a chance. Um, if if a, a scientist could tell me just about anything they wanted, and I wouldn't know the difference. Now, not to be mean, but I have a feeling that a degree in theology on Dr. Craig's part puts him more or less in the same position as I am. And I have, I think, some different information about the science behind the Big Bang. For one thing, it seems to me that the principle of indeterminacy, which seems to be a part of quantum physics, doesn't actually allow us to definitively say that we ever have nothing. In fact, what we get is quantum vacuum, which is simply an area in which there is a possibility of spontaneous antiparticle and particle um, creation or popping into existence effectively. Now, if that's the case, then there's no room within any scientific theory for the nothing that supposedly predates the Big Bang um, out of which matter was created. Now, 
Dr. Craig, I think, is also skating over the work of a large number of scientists. He seems to be suggesting that, well, if the story he's given us, scientists should just be giving up on researching anything before the Big Bang or even bothering with, with anything within the Big Bang because it's creation out of nothing. We're into mes metaphysics now and we've gone past what science can possibly do. That makes a total mystery of the work of... Uh-oh. Uh where are they? Oh yes, um, Paul Steinhardt and Neil Turok, who I believe are working on a cyclical model of, of cosmology. Um, Robert Brandenberger at McGill University Physics Department, who is working on string gas cosmology. And then I've taken a quote from, from Quentin Smith, where he lists a really wide range of theories like Gus, uh, original inflationary theory that just don't fit into the model that's, that D Dr. Craig has presented to us. Now, I guess all I can say about that, being not a physicist myself and not really in a good position to comment on those issues, is that I rather suspect the scientists don't have the same idea that Dr. Craig has about this. Surely it should be crazy for them to produ produce research on these topics if Dr. Craig's account of things is accurate they continue to produce research. Now, I, did, I somehow missed how exactly God's non-existence would take objective moral value out of the universe. That seems to me to be imposing a rather straightened um, set of con conditions upon what would count as an objective morality. He also claims that this exists, which I was quite flabbergasted. I didn't know that objective morality had been definitively discovered. Now, I'm wondering exactly what, what counts as the discovery of objective morality. Is it the consensus that we have on some of the horrible crimes that Dr. Craig listed? Well, a consensus is something that's entirely possible socially. It might well be that without any connection to God, we all happen to agree that there are some things that are simply pretty horrible. And that's not necessarily anything outside of human experience, or it's, it's not a truth that transcends human experience. It's not something beyond our ken. Um, it's quite possibly something that is objective only in the sense that it's consensually agreed upon by a given society or by all of us. Now, unless Dr. Craig want, wants to offer us some, some account of this that is incompatible with um, society's consensus, I think we've got another source for objective morality. Thank you. All right. Easy on me. <laughs> so I get to play the prosecuting uh, attorney here. Um, I'd like to begin with my five arguments, uh, and then we can end, if I have time, on your three arguments. Um, I notice that you have not replied yet to my fine-tuning argument to the argument on the resurrection of Jesus and to the appeal to immediate experience. Is that right? Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about your reply to the origin of the universe uh, argument, the um, cosmological argument. I gave two arguments for the second premise that the universe began to exist. One was a philosophical argument and one was a scientific argument. Now, you haven't responded yet to my philosophical argument, is that right? Remind me what that was. That was the one based on the impossibility of the existence of an actual infinite. Remember the infinite number of things in your sister's basement? <laughs> Actually, it wasn't junk in my sister's basement. 
It was my books. Your books, yeah. okay. And, and I do have an infinite number of books. You do. See, there's... Uh, well, where in the world do you put them? She's got a large base. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an infinite number of books, of course, would occupy an infinite amount of space, uh, which would have interesting cosmological implications. Well, I would be interested in hearing how you would respond to the argument against the existence of the actual infinite, if you can do that in your next speech. Let me go on to what you did say about the Big Bang Theory. Um, here you suggested that I wasn't expert in the area, uh, and that therefore you were dubious of what I was saying. Now, um, you would agree that Alexander Vilenkin is expert in this area, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think he expertly disagrees with you. Well, Vilenkin was the gentleman I quoted in my first speech who said, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Now, do you think Professor Vilenkin, who's an eminent cosmologist at Tufts University, is, is mistaken in what he says here? Well, you know, I, I, I can only fall back on the problems that I have is I'm not, I'm not really qualified to talk as a physicist. The truth of the matter is that they could say anything to me, and I think I'd pretty much accept it. The problem I raised there is not so much as your expertise. I actually don't know very much about it. I'm, I'm guessing a degree in theology doesn't really give you a good grounding in, in physics, though so I'm sure you, you can read as widely as you like in the area. My concern is that it seems to me that physicists are actually doing research that kind of presupposes that, you, that the, the way you've laid out the absolute beginning of the universe, its creation out of nothing, can't possibly be correct. Well, let's talk about that then. Um, you quoted, for example, uh, Paul Steinhardt and Neil Turok's work on ekpyrotic uh, cyclical models. Uh, isn't it the case that uh, Alexander Vilenkin uh, with Alan Guth and Arvind Bord developed this theorem for the past finitude of the universe specifically uh, in an application to Steinhardt's model, showing that it, it cannot be infinite in the past. I'd have to beg off in that. I well, don't think take a look say. at Paul Steinhardt's website, uh, where I think you'll find this uh, uh, admitted. And as for Alan Guth, you mentioned his work on inflationary cosmology. This theorem that I quoted was developed by Alan Guth, along with Arvind Bord and Alexander Vilenkin. So that Guth himself says, inflationary models cannot be extended into the infinite past. Um, so why do they continue doing research on that? Well, let me, let me ask you this. Um, isn't it the case that we have not yet discovered a quantum theory of gravity, a theory that would unify the four forces of nature into a quantum gravity theory? That's true. And so wouldn't this be an incentive to per per pursue further research? Sure. And wouldn't it also be the case that when a scientist proposes a theory, he will list conditions that would serve to falsify that theory in hopes that those experiments would uh, fail and thereby corroborate his theory? So isn't it the case that theorists who uh, believe that the universe had a beginning will continue to pursue research aimed at attempting to falsify their models? Uh, that'd be a good idea. Okay. Um, let's talk about objective moral values. 
you made some vague comments here, but I'm not sure where you stand yet, uh, Dr. Williamson. You, you, I would agree with you when you said that we can all agree on something, and that's not objective. Um, I defined objective to mean valid and binding whether anybody believes in it or not. For example, uh, to say the Holocaust was objectively wrong would be to say that even if the Nazis had won World War II and brainwashed or exterminated everybody who disagreed with them, it would still have been wrong, uh, even if nobody held that. Now, would you agree that if God doesn't exist, then moral values aren't objective in that way? That's what I'm lacking, is I don't see what your argument is between God's existence and the existence of objective values. Well, then let me put the question a different way. You said we have another source for morality. If God does not exist, if God is dead, as Nietzsche said, then what other source for objective moral values is there that would stave off the kind of moral nihilism that Nietzsche predicted? Well, my suggestion there, well, let me try and put it this way. Uh, I was interested in what you wanted to give us in the way of a demonstration that there actually is an objective morality out there. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me you relied on something that was effectively consensus. Now, how do we know from all of the beliefs about morality that human beings actually hold, what ones are actually independent of their holding those? All right, now what I hear you saying now is that it sounds to me like you are skeptical that objective moral values exist. What I'm asking is, it seems to me, the claim that objective moral morality exists deserves some kind, of, some kind of an account that would actually meet your definition. But I, w I would like to know what you think. I mean, which of these two premises do you disagree with if you disagree with the conclusion? Which premise is false? Well, I think the trouble is that's going to take us far afield. But I would say, I accept an objective morality. The trouble is, I think I would want to put some constraints on what objectivity means. It seems to me objectivity if, is, is perfectly good as an idea of consensus within human societies. Okay. Well, Dr. Craig, I'd like to start out by asking, um, you've got, you're suggesting that the actual infinite universe would be an impossibility. And I believe you've brought up Hilbert's Hotel as an example there. Could you run us through Hilbert's Hotel? Sure. I, I didn't bring that up tonight, but I'd be happy to I do in my work. David Hilbert, whom I quoted in the first speech, wanted to illustrate what it would be like if an actually infinite number of things could exist. And so he said, let's imagine a hotel with an infinite number of rooms. And let's suppose that every room is occupied. This is absolutely critical to understand. There is no vacancy in the hotel. There's a person in every room. Now he says, let's suppose somebody shows up at the desk asking for a room. The proprietor says, no problem. And he moves the person in room one into room two. The person in room two into room three. The person in room three into room four on out to infinity. And as a result, the first room becomes vacant and the new guest easily checks in. But before he arrived, all the rooms were full. Suppose an infinite number of new guests show up at the hotel, and again, every room is already occupied. No problem, no problem, says the proprietor. And he shifts the guest in room one into room two, the guest in room two into room four, the guest in room three into room six. He puts every guest in the room number double his own. Well, since any number times two is always an even number, all of the even-numbered rooms become 
occupied, all of the odd-numbered rooms are vacant, and the infinity of new guests check in, uh, even though there was no vacancy in the hotel. Well, I agree with Hilbert, such a hotel is absurd. This is a mathematical thought experiment that could not possibly be instantiated in reality. And so this would just be one of the illustrations that one might use to show the impossibility of the existence of an actually infinite number of things. Okay. Um, so the issue is the question of how we can understand obvious operations that should arrive us with a bigger sum than the one that we previously had. Well, I wouldn't put it so abstractly. I would want to say, how can you have a hotel that is absolutely fully occupied and yet can accommodate infinite numbers of new people just by moving people around? That, that to me, strikes, that strikes me as absurd. Well, I guess I'd want to suggest that there's two different senses to bigger than that seem to yes. be working in there. One is a, is a numerical sense in which one set simply has an, a number of members greater than another. And another sen sense of bigger than in which any proper part of, of a whole, the whole is always bigger than the proper part. Now I think these two different... Did you say is bigger or is the same as the proper part? Is prop b bigger, sorry. Okay. The whole is bigger than the proper part. Uh-huh. Though it, with infinites, that fails. Exactly. The proper part is, is, has the same number of members as the whole. Yeah, and that's why it's typically held that the numerical sense of bigger than would be the only one that really applies to the notion of infinity. Yeah. Now, does right, this... and that gets you hotels like Hilbert's Hotel, which mm -hmm. to me seems crazy. Does this prove any, any more than there's some odd implications of talking about infinity? Well, I think that is a, a, a good response. You could just say that just shows the infinite is bizarre. Um, but I think that there comes a point at which one's credulity is stretched to the breaking point, and one says, this is mad. And I think that especially comes when you begin to subtract. And that was why I mentioned in my opening speech, subtracting infinity from infinity. Just very quickly, suppose all the odd-numbered guests check out of the hotel. In that case, an infinite number of people has left the hotel, and yet an infinite number still remain, all the even-numbered guests. So infinity minus infinity is infinity. But now suppose instead all the guests in the rooms greater than three check out. In this case, there are only three people left in the hotel. So infinity minus infinity is three. And yet in both cases, the same number of people checked out from the same number of people. You have identical quantities minus identical quantities and you get self-contradictory answers. In fact, you can get any answer from zero to infinity. And I think, again, what this shows is that these are mere mathematical tricks that cannot be descriptive of the real world because self-contradictions don't come true. Okay. Um, I'd, I'd sort of also like to get, go back to the topic of quantum physics, the origin of the Big Bang, and all, all that right. sort of stuff. Um, hey, look, you know, I, I'm, you obviously know much more about the subject than I do, but I'm still puzzled. Why do people like Quentin Smith say that other people disagree with you. Well, now, Quentin is a dear friend of mine. He's uh -huh. at the University of Western Michigan. We co-wrote a book called Theism, Atheism, and Big Bang Cosmology. And Quentin is an ardent atheist. He, he, he will do anything to avoid the existence of God. And he himself admits in his writing, like the book I mentioned, that the universe did begin to exist. He agrees with me that the universe began to exist. 
But in our book, he says, if I can quote him accurately, uh, the most reasonable position is that the universe came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. Uh, now, to me, that is the, the height of irrationality. Uh, but he doesn't disagree with me on the second premise, that the universe began to exist. And the people you mentioned, Guth, Steinhardt, and so forth, have already explained that this theorem that was developed in 2003 applies to their models. Okay. So, you're right, I'm not a cosmologist, but I, I, I did do my doctoral work in the cosmological argument, which took me into uh, cosmology as an avocation, and uh, I try to confer with people like Valenkin and Donald Page at the University of Alberta and so forth to keep abreast of developments in the field. Okay. One last question, because I think I'm pretty much out of time here. If, the mor if an objective morality exists, where are you finding it? I mean, where do you find the list of moral commandments? Uh, that is an epistemological question, not an ontological question. What I mean by that, for those who aren't familiar with the terms, that's a question about how we come to know our, our moral principles. How do we come to a knowledge of moral principles? My concern is the question of the foundations of morality. What is their ontological foundation? Now, I'm quite open to any epistemological approaches to our knowledge of moral values that you might want to suggest. Intuition, uh, natural law, ethics, divine revelation. I, I'm open to all sorts of uh, epistemological paths to our knowledge of the good. But my interest here is not with moral epistemology, but with moral ontology. What's the foundation for moral values? So any, any epistemological approach to morality that you'd like to propose, I can second that. I can be quite in, in enthusiastic about it. Well, thank you very much. I, I hope you've enjoyed the debate this evening as much as I have. In my closing speech, I'd like to draw together some of the threads of the argument and see if I can summarize them. I argued that tonight uh, I would support two contentions. First, that there's no good reasons to think that atheism is true. And I don't think that Dr. Williamson has been able to carry any of his three arguments. First, his argument concerning negative atheism. I showed that atheism, on that view, negative atheism, is really a misnomer. It's really non-theism, and that's not a view. He says in his last speech, well, I admit non-theism isn't a view, but that is inconsequential. Well, the consequence is this. Unless he's willing to defend traditional atheism, then he hasn't answered our question tonight that is under debate. Does God exist? Um, we need more than just non-theism. We need an answer to that question. And he hasn't given us one unless he's willing to support positive atheism. Now, in fact, he is willing. He presents an argument for the incoherence of theism. I defined several of divine attributes for him, and the only one he chose to respond to is omniscience. He said, well, it's very convenient that you define omniscience propositionally. Well, this is not born out of convenience. This is the classical understanding of omniscience that has always been held. I would challenge him to show me anyone in the history of thought who thinks that God, as an omniscient being, needs to have all non-propositional knowledge. That would clearly be absurd because that would mean, for example, that God would have to know that he is Napoleon because that was something Napoleon knew. 
And so God would have to know it too, that he is Napoleon. Moreover, he'd have to also know that he is Ronald Reagan, because that's something that Reagan knew. So that God would have an utterly incoherent uh, cognitive state. No, what omniscience requires is that God know all truth, that he knows all truths and believes no falsehoods, and that is perfectly coherent. What about the doctrine of the incarnation? Dr. Williamson says it's contradictory to say that Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. You cannot say Jesus is God in that case. The point here, I think, is that he's misunderstood the statement, Jesus is God, as an identity statement. That's not an identity statement. That is an is of predication, as when we say, for example, uh, Belshazzar is king. Uh, We don't necessarily mean he's the only king. There could be co-regents, for example. But we mean he has he occupies this office. So when we say Jesus is God, that's another way of saying Jesus is divine. This is clear because, you see, the Christian believes that God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we don't want to say that Jesus is the trinity. That would be incoherent. So to say Jesus is God is to say Jesus is divine. That is to say he has a divine nature. He is also human. He has a human nature. So that's perfectly coherent. What about the problem of evil? I argued that there are two unjustified assumptions that he assumes. First, that God can actualize any world that he creates. And Dr. Williamson responded by saying, why can't God create any logical possible world? This is very technical, but the reason basically is that the right counterfactuals of freedom may not be true for God to actualize just any possible world. What do I mean by that? God faces truths like, if Jones were in circumstances C, he would freely write to his wife. And if that statement is true, even God cannot put Jones in C and leave him free and not have Jones write to his wife. So that God's power is limited by the logical impossibility of making people freely do something. Again, if you're interested in exploring this, look at Alvin Plantinga's book, The Nature of Necessity. And there's a good explanation of what he calls Leibniz's lapse, which is Dr. Williams's assumption that God can just create any logically possible world. If that assumption is wrong, the whole argument on the problem of evil goes down the drain. Moreover, Dr. Williams said, Williamson said that God eliminates evil insofar as possible. There's too much evil to be necessary. But I argued that that principle is false. It's not true that God necessarily eliminates as much evil as is possible. God's goal for this life is not human happiness in this life, but to bring the maximum number of people freely to salvation. And the atheist would have to show that there's a possible world that God could have created in which as many people come to a knowledge of himself and salvation as this world, but with less evil. And that's completely beyond the atheist's capacity to make probable uh, or to to even speculate about. So none of these reasons, I think, are, are good. As for the five reasons I presented, I think that all of them have remained uh, unattacked tonight. Uh, The only argument we heard anything about was the objectivity of moral values. And here, Dr. Williamson seems to define objectivity merely in terms of consensus. And as he said, that isn't objectivity as I've defined it. Without God, you cannot say that what the Nazis did what the Soviets did, what they did in South Africa in apartheid, was objectively morally wrong. But if you believe that those things were objectively wrong, then you will agree with me that God exists as a foundation for moral values. Finally, I want to say something about that word of immediate experience. 
As I said, I wasn't raised in a Christian family. I wasn't always a person who, who followed Christ. But my life was turned upside down when I had a personal experience of God as a teenager. And I would encourage you, if you're seeking God, to do what I did. Pick up a New Testament, begin to read it, and ask yourself, could it be that there really is a God who loves me, who created the world, who wants me to know him, who sent his son to die for me on the cross and raised him from the dead that I could have eternal life? I believe that it could change your life in the same way that it changed mine. Well, thank you. Now, I have to admit, I'm not particularly well prepared for this segment. I didn't get so far as thinking through what I was going to close on. I was hoping something would kind of just come up. Um, maybe there's some things out there. Now, I, I honestly, I think Dr. Craig is overstating his case a fair bit um, on some points. Now, what I pointed out about what about pointed out about this issue of what goodness happens to mean? I'm not concerned that God maybe doesn't wish us to be happy or doesn't, doesn't have an overall objective of making us happy. What I claimed was goodness should seek to eliminate evil so much as possible. And what's at question here is whether or not there's any excessive evil in the cosmos. Now, it seems to me Dr. Craig is staking his claim on the supposition that God has a plan out there somewhere. But as a matter of fact, unless we see that plan, we still have a problem of evil. It's not quite good enough to suppose that there is a good reason behind all the evil we see, such that then the atheist really has to come up with something fancy. I think, I think there's actually a pretty straightforward thing that we can come up with. Rather than evil at the co co free will at the cost of evil or character development at the cost of evil, why create it all? Why did God need a cosmos? Now, there's a part in there about uh, the wonderful goodness of knowing God. Well, obviously, as an atheist, I'm a little skeptical about what exactly makes that, that a good. Um, perhaps it's an instance of saying it making it so. I don't know. So I'm a little skeptical that we, he's really proven as much as he ha thinks he has and that I've failed utterly as, as he thinks I have. Um, there are many, many other arguments out there in, on the problem of evil. And once again, as I'd suggested on the issue of creation of, of these worlds, I'd pointed out there's no contradiction whatsoever between having free will and having all good choices. Now, that's something that Dr. Craig hasn't replied to. I was wondering what exactly his view might be there. Now, it brought up the issue of objective morality here and how we might get to something that's actually outside of, of human ken or, or something that transcends human ken. I don't quite see why we can't say that the Holocaust was an evil thing if God doesn't exist. I mean, Honestly, having never known anything of God, I'm a lifelong atheist, I'm still quite committed to the evil of, of genocide being evil. I, I have no problem with asserting the evil of that. I have no problem asserting the evil of a wide, wide variety of things. So where does my morality come from? Well, it seems to me quite plain that my morality comes from where it comes from for everyone else here. It comes from the cultures that we've grown up in. It comes from our parents. It comes from our societies. 
Now, I think once you've tracked the connection between society and morality, I'm not sure what the role for God ought to be there. I'm still unconvinced that there is some kind of, of support ontologically for morality out of God's existence. Now, Dr. Craig's claims that God is a paradigm of morality, but I think that really can't be so. Because if that were so, well, thinking about the meter stick in France uh, that is the paradigm of meters, one thing you can't say about that stick is that it's one meter long. Why can't you say that? Well, what are you going to measure it with exactly? Are you going to pull out your dusty old grade three meter stick and hold it up against the paradigm meter stick and say, nope, it's a little bit short? No, that's not going to work. So you can't measure, strictly speaking, the paradigm of, of the meter stick. And if God happens to be the paradigm of morality, well, we can't say he's good. But that's one of the standard claims, isn't it? So God couldn't be the paradigm of morality and without some odd consequences there. Sorry, what's my timeline? Okay, well, rather than fight for something in my notes that might look like a good point, I think I'll call it quits. Thank you very much for putting up with a whole bunch of philosophy tonight. All right, so we'll have a question for Dr. Craig first. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> You, you are arguing from a Christian perspective, but couldn't most of your arguments, really the ones, except for the ones that deal with Jesus, also argue for a polytheistic point of view or universe? I don't think that they would be consistent with a polytheistic view, but I think they would certainly be consistent with other monotheisms. Um, for example, take the first argument about uh, a cause of the universe. It seems to me that Occam's razor will shave away these additional deities. Occam's razor says don't postulate causes beyond necessity. You're only justified in positing as many causes as is necessary to explain the effect. So this would give you a creator of the universe, but it would be unwarranted to postulate a, uh, a number of them. Um, so I think my arguments would be consistent with Islam, Judaism, certain theistic forms of Hinduism. In fact, the argument, the first cosmological argument, is actually an argument that was developed in great sophistication in medieval Islam, medieval Islamic theology, and some of its most prominent historical proponents are Muslim theologians like al-Khazali and al-Kindi, for example. So I have a great appreciation of them. But where I differ with these other monotheisms is when it comes to the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, but all I could add to that was I wouldn't have taken Dr. Craig to be arguing for polytheism at all. Um, I, I kind of assumed that I was just playing off the topic. But anyway. Question for Dr. Williamson? Yeah, Dr. Williamson, I was just wondering if considering the complexity of life, specifically the complexity of the human body, don't you think it takes more faith to believe that all of this just happened by chance than to believe that a mind went into the creation of it? Did you want me to re repeat that? Or? Pardon me? Um, yeah, considering the complexity of life, specifically the complexity of the human body, um, don't you think it takes more faith to believe that it all happened by chance than to believe that a mind went into the creation of it all? Well, I guess I simply wouldn't bring faith into it at all. It seems to me there's some good theories, evolution, for example, out there that tell us all kinds of interesting things about the complexity of life. Frankly, rather than 
faith in in a creator for for life i find it more fascinating to think that all of this came out of some very basic principles working over a long period of time thank you and i get a counter response now yep okay um any improbability in the origin of life or the origin of the human body or the origin of consciousness just layers on more improbability to the pro improbability that's already present in the fine-tuning. So to support the questioner's point of view, consider this from uh, John Barrow and Frank Tipler's book, Anthropic Cosmological Principle. They list ten steps in the course of human evolution, each of which is so improbable that before it would occur, the sun would have ceased to be a main sequence star and incinerated the earth. And yet all ten had to occur. They calculate the odds of the evolution of the human genome between some, to be between somewhere uh, between four to the negative 180th power to the negative 110,000th power and four to the negative 360 power to the 110,000th power. I mean, these are inconceivable numbers. Uh, so that if evolution did occur, I think it would literally have to have been a miracle and therefore evidence for the existence of God. It, sorry, sorry, Garrett, is there any room for replies? Uh, if you want to, I mean, discussion. <laughs> okay, don't let me, nobody's up my mic anyway, so. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Nobody. Sorry, you're not close enough to the mic. Um, I, I just like to comment. I mean, Dr. Craig, it seems to me you're using probability as an analog for impossibility. And then I think you commit the gambler's fallacy. You seem to be suggesting somehow that a long shot is something that takes a long time to come about. But it might have happened at the very first instant. It is a very long shot, for example, for me to win the lottery, but I might win it the first ticket I buy. Now the gambler's fallacy is assuming that there's some connection between the odds for any given instance and, and the length of time over which you're doing it, such that typical gambler's fallacy suggests if I'm flipping a coin and I get nine tails in a row, ahead is certain next time. Well, that's not the way it works. The fact of the matter is we're here and that indicates that that distant probability, whatever big a number you want to put on it, occurred. Well, it may not indicate that it occurred. It may indicate that there's a better, more probable explanation uh, than that that uh, inconceivably improbable event actually took place. So we can't reason simply from our existence to saying, therefore, the improbable happened, because that may cry out for some other explanation of how we got here, like a, some sort of a guiding intelligence. But probability doesn't get you there. Um, I think that the analogy, uh, at least with respect to fine-tuning, isn't like the gambler, inverse gambler's fallacy that you mentioned. Um, because the correct analogy is not uh, for example, a lottery in which anybody's winning is equally improbable, but somebody has to win. It's more like a lottery in which billions and billions and billions of black balls are mixed together with one white ball. And one, white, uh, and, and one ball is going to be 
randomly chosen from the mix. And if it's black, you'll be killed. If it's white, you'll be permitted to live. The experiment takes place, and lo and behold, the white ball rolls down the chute. Now, what should you conclude? In a case like that, you ought to conclude that this wasn't random. This was rigged. Because whichever ball rolls down the chute is equally improbable with any other ball. But whichever ball rolls down the chute, it is overwhelmingly more probable that it will be black rather than white. And that's the correct probability reasoning here. And it doesn't commit, I think, this gambler's fallacy. Well, I'm, I'm going to let you get on with it now. Yeah. <laughs> Right, so we could probably discuss all the questions forever, um, but we'll limit it. I think we will stick with the sort of two-minute, one-minute reply just to keep things moving. Uh, so I, I'm going to read from some cards from the overflow right now. Um, so this is a question for Dr. Craig. Uh, this says that Dr. Craig used the mathematical thought problem of the Infinity Hotel and its ludicrousy. However, isn't that exactly how theists view heaven? Ah, okay. Let me try to explain, I think, what the questioner is getting at. Don't... don't Theists, or Christians at least, think that heaven is eternal life and that therefore this is infinite. Uh, there'll be an infinite number of years, say, in heaven. Here it's very important that we distinguish, I think, with respect to time, the difference between the past and the future. The past is actual in a way that the future is not. When we talk about time going on forever or eternal life into the future, Infinity there is merely a limit which we endlessly approach but never arrive at. It's not as though there will ever be an infinite number of days that one has lived. Rather, it's, it's a purely a limit concept. Like you've probably seen in mathematics where a curve asymptotically approaches an axis and gets closer and closer, but it never gets there. Infinity is just a limit. That's the way it is with the future. But with the past, you see, or with Hilbert's Hotel, there the infinity exists in actuality, not merely potentiality. So you need to discriminate between an actual infinite, which is what I'm arguing against, and a merely potential infinite, which is always finite, but just endlessly increasing toward infinity as a limit, but never arriving there. Uh, okay, so this is another card question for Dr. Williamson. Uh, it says that you've never addressed the issue of how one can explain a personal experience with God. How would you explain miracles and when God speaks with people and other things like that? What personal experience of God? I mean, do I have to believe in that? See, I'm not, not convinced that somebody saying, but Jesus talked to me this morning, is much more than a saying it. I mean, unless saying it actually does make it so, I think I, within my, my rights, to be skeptical of, of this experience. Particularly since it seems to be something that either you get third-party reports or it happens to you directly. I guess I'm waiting for it to happen to me. Though the lightning bolt is much more likely. As I said when I presented this, it's not an argument for God's existence. And in that sense, I think Dr. Williams's response is quite right. Rather, I'm claiming for the person who has the immediate experience of God, it is rational for him to believe in God on the basis of that experience, unless he's got some other overriding reason to think that he's deluded. And so what I would encourage you to do, and Dr. Williamson to do, is to engage in a spiritual experiment. Uh, begin to read the Bible. 
and to pray and ask God to make himself real to you. Begin to um, go to uh, worship or, or something of that sort. Begin a spiritual quest or, or journey and ask God to make himself real to you uh, and, and see what happens. All right, so we'll go back to questions from the floor. So question for Dr. Craig. Hello, my question is that uh, none of the physical Big Bang theories out there, none of them have the physicists start by saying God did it, then the Big Bang. That's why they're investigating it. And it cannot be scientific mm -hmm. to include God did this or God before that because it defies the principle of falsifiability, mm -hmm. which is the cornerstone of our science. We cannot fill the gaps. Yep, there is a question. So, <laughs> so how do you explain basically the technique of filling the gaps of what we know right now with simply God did it when there is no way of testing it? Yeah. This is a wonderful question. Can we have the slide on the cosmological argument up again? Notice that I am not proposing God as a sort of theoretical entity in a scientific theory. So you are quite right in saying that scientists don't include God as part of their cosmology. But neither am I. All I'm using the scientific evidence for is empirical support for that second premise, the universe began to exist, which is a religiously neutral statement that can be found in any textbook on astronomy and astrophysics. The theological implications only emerge in the context of a, a philosophical argument uh, that isn't a scientific argument. This isn't an exercise in metaphysics, literally beyond physics. So I'm not using God of the gaps reasoning. I'm not using God as a scientific entity. I'm not doing theistic science. I'm simply saying that the best current science we have makes premise two more plausible than not. And the religious significance of this only emerges in the context of this broader philosophical argument. You know, honestly, I, I'm not convinced by your response, Dr. Craig. It seems to me that we are talking about a competition between some possible scientific theory that it will tell us something about how the Big Bang came to be and God is doing, doing the explaining there. I mean, in, in short, the question is, do we have a scientific theory for the or origin of, of the universe or do we necessarily have to fall back on God? And I guess I'd like to point out some things that would be missing from God doing the explaining. I think like our questioner was, was alluding to. For example, what would, what would thinking God started the Big Bang give us in the way of predictions? Could we predict the eventual shape of the universe? Could we predict whether or not we're expanding to nothing or coming back to a big crunch? doesn't seem like God would allow us to predict that. Once you, once you get to God doing it, then it seems like all you get is God doing it. Um, are you pointing that at me? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> He's telling me to stop. <laughs> um, scientific theories typically also allow us an integration of other theories. Like, think about uh, static electricity and magnetism. We get a more powerful theory, and it brings two unrelated or previously unrelated phenomena together. I'm not convinced that God would do that for the physical universe in any way. 
I mean, I'd agree with the, the, the questioners that God can't function as, as, as a scientific theory. And I, I appreciate your response, but I'm, I'm, I'm worried that there is, is still room for a competition between God and a scientific theory there. Okay, question for Dr. Williamson. Um, Dr. Williamson, that. you spoke at the beginning of your argument, you talked about proof and the burden thereof. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering um, how you sort of reach a definition in your argument. Do, that do you see that it just continuing on infinitely involving little more than just finding inconsistencies in the opposing side? Or can you imagine some situation where there would be a definitive proof for either God's existence or conversely his non-existence? Like, is there anything like absolute that you can conceive of that you would accept for those conditions? Oh, for, to prove God to me? Well, or either one. Like, can you... Is there any situation where you conceive of anyone saying definitively God exists or God does not exist? Hmm. Well, I guess it seems to me the question's tied up with more than reason, since obviously um, the question of religion isn't a completely rational topic. I, I know we both tried to press, press the issue of reason, but then there's that issue of, of direct experience of God, and I think you'd be suggesting that that's not something that's immediately rational in itself. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's also the question of what God's plan is, and I'm not sure how one would come up with that apart from revelation. I'm not, not sure you, if we... I mean, I, I haven't heard you give anything that would lead us to think that there's a detailed plan back there that can be worked out by principles of reason. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that simply has to be revealed. I mean, honestly, I think... I, I, I'm convinced by things like the problem of evil, and we only saw a tiny bit of that problem tonight. The problem of the incoherence of the concept of God, we saw only a small amount of that tonight as well. I'm convinced by these things, but once again, I think the problem involves more than reason, and I kind of doubt that we're ever going to come to an end of it. It's funny, I I don't know where Dr. Williamson is, but I have met many atheists uh, for whom nothing would convince them that God exists. And, and therefore, the fact that they don't find the evidence compelling, in a sense, becomes trivial because no amount of evidence would convince them that God exists. Uh, I do think that Dr. Williamson is correct also in saying that this does involve ah rational matters as well. It involves a certain openness to, to God. Uh, I think it was Thomas Huxley who said, I don't want God to exist. I don't want to live in a universe like that. I want my human autonomy. And for a person like that, they can simply refuse to be convinced. So there are volitional factors that that enter into the picture here as well as rational ones. Thank you. Okay, I think we're just going to stick in the hall for the next question. So another question for Dr. Craig. Dr. Craig, uh, you, you uh, mentioned objective morality is one of the reasons that God has to exist. Uh, but, but I ask you, what can a religious person do that an atheist cannot, morally speaking? And if you can't cite one example, doesn't that make God irrelevant? No, it doesn't. I, I think to think that, you've misunderstood my argument. 
What I would say is that if God does not exist, then neither the atheist nor the theist can act morally, because there would be no objective morals. They might do exactly the same things, but they would not count as good and evil. On the other hand, if God does exist, then both the theist and the atheist can lead good, decent, moral lives because there is an absolute standard of what counts as right and wrong. Do you see? It's, it's the foundation, it's the plumb line that I'm interested in, um, not whether or not atheists live good moral lives and so forth. Uh, and so it's, it's vital to understand this argument uh, to avoid misunderstandings such as the question seem to reveal. Hmm. Well, I think I was trying to get at some issue like this um, when I was pressing Dr. Craig on what the objective morality might be. Um, well, I guess I'm still kind of stuck there. I appreciate your argument that you're going after some ontology rather than epistemology there. But, you know, if somebody claims that they've got the objective morality, I still really want to know the details. Sure. Okay, question for Dr. Williamson. Um, my question is actually more directed towards both participants. Uh, quite frankly, I'm in this line because it was shorter. <laughs> but um, there's this debate, and it's been going on in this whole science versus religion debate, and uh, science more specifically, evolution. And there's the question that if you believe in evolution, you can't believe in God. And if you believe in God because of what your religious book says, you can't believe in evolution. But me personally, I, I like to think that evolution might just be part of God's higher intelligent design. So I just want to know, is it possible to believe in both from both participants? Well, it seems to me a lot of scientists do manage it. So it's certainly not a logical impossibility. There are perfectly well Christian believing scientists who believe in the theory of evolution. Um, I guess. I think the only thing I can comment about the question of whether whether it makes sense to put God at the beginning of evolution is well go back to Occam's razor. Do we have something in the explanation that in, in our theory that's not doing any explanatory work? It seems to me once you've got the theory of evolution, God is kind of superflu superfluous there. I think the answer is clearly yes. And I've defended this view in an article called uh, Naturalism and Intelligent Design, which appears in the volume Intelligent Design, edited by uh, Robert Stewart. And I would say that evolution could be the means by which the intelligent designer brought about, for example, Homo sapiens. Uh, God could intervene in the process to cause systemic macro mutations, for example, that would then be subject to natural selection that would never in all probability have come about had nature been less left to its own devices. So I don't see any inherent incompatibility between the two. All right, thank you. Okay, so apparently there's like twice as many people in the overflow, so I'm gonna ask from some of the cards. So this is a question for Dr. Craig, and I think I can sum it up by saying, who created God? Could we have the cosmological argument slide again? <laughs> this question, who created God, or all right, what is God's cause? I've heard so many college sophomores ask this question, and so this is the sort of knockdown argument that destroys theism. 
And they, it's just based on a misunderstanding. Look at the first premise. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. That is to say, something cannot come into being out of nothing. Anything that begins to exist has a cause. But if something exists eternally, if it never comes into being, then it doesn't need a cause. Um, and this is what the atheist has always said about the universe. This isn't spe special pleading for God. The atheist has typically said the universe is eternal and uncaused, and therefore there doesn't need to be anything beyond it. The problem is, philosophical argument and scientific evidence now make that improbable. So uh, God, the answer is, is a timeless being beyond space uh, and time, necessary in his existence, didn't have a beginning, and therefore is the first uncaused cause. So the question is really, what is the cause of the first uncaused cause? You know, which is sort of asking about the name of the married bachelor's wife. You know, it, it just is meaningless. Um, well, let me express uh, some sympathy with the questioner. Um, if we really did have one of those things out there that caused itself or had no beginning whatsoever, it strikes me that that would be something that so completely needs an explanation that it couldn't do any explanatory work itself. We'd, it's the more it's the more improbable thing than the world that we see around us. Okay, so I would read a question card for Dr. Williamson, but there are very few coming from Thorvaldson. So, question okay. for Dr. Williamson. Um, well, again, I, I chose this line because it was shorter, and I wanted to ask a question and kind of make a comment uh, to both of you. First of all, um, I, I didn't feel like I was persuaded one way or the other. I think most of us came in, like, like you said, into this um, debate with our preconceived notions of God and kind of like our mind made up. And if God does exist and God is going to come into our life, I think it's going to happen regardless of whether or not this debate takes place. Um, also, it seems strange that um, two educated men, such as yourselves, uh, used entirely sexist and gender-exclusive language throughout the whole debate. And I have three questions. First of all, regardless of whether or not you believe in God, and regardless of whether or not God exists, would you, would you try and strive for a life filled with love? Yes? Yes? Could you repeat the question? Regardless of whether or not God exists, would you still live striving for a life filled with love? Yes or no? I'd go for it. Yeah? Yes, I think, yeah, I, think okay. I probably would. All right. Um, now, do you believe that love is important or most important in this life regardless of whether or not there's an afterlife? That's a two-parter. Um, Regardless of whether or not there's an afterlife, do you believe that love in this life is important or most important? I think it's important. Okay. I'm not sure about no, most I, I wouldn't say so. It seems to me that in the absence of an afterlife, everything becomes futile uh, and that everything is reduced to meaninglessness. Okay, but you, you do believe that love is important, right? Oh, of course. Okay, so then um, do you think that maybe we could gain more progress uh, more human progress and more progress here at a university discussing and having a debate on the plight of patriarchy throughout history and obviously 
up to this point with, uh, with, with sexist language instead of dealing with something that we're don't seem to be making any, any headway on, and we can't know for sure. So you're asking, wouldn't it be more important, rather than having this debate, to have a debate on patriarchy? Well, it, considering the fact... Do you have an open-ended question? Uh, well, it, it's just a yes or no question. That right, that's it, a cross-examination. And so it's not going to be a discussion unless you ask something open-ended. Well, it just seems strange that, that there is this... this um, this use of, of sexist language and the exclusion of a number of people in this audience, and yet we're discussing, that, that seems something simple, and yet we're discussing and having a debate about something so huge and difficult. It just, it just seems strange. Like, can yeah. you comment on that? Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I certainly would regret that I used all sexist language. I don't. Sorry. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what context I would be saying he, except to refer to Bill. Um, That's or, all right. Or God. I guess sure. I was making the assumption that we were talking about a Christian God who's typically depicted as male. Maybe that's sexist in itself. But remember, I'm the one who doesn't believe in him. I don't know. What, what, are, what are your thoughts? Um, I think that this is the most fundamental and important question that a person can ask. And that even questions, for example, of patriarchy and so forth, fall into insignificance if God does not exist, because then there are no objective moral values, and no one has any value. And you cannot condemn sexism, non-inclusivist language, and all the rest, because there isn't any absolute basis for moral values. In nature, whatever is, is right. If a a great white shark rapes uh, and copulates with another shark. It, it, uh, it uh, copulates with it, but there's no moral agency attached to that. Acts like rape go on all the time in the animal kingdom, and there is no moral agency attached to it. So the, the very issue that you're concerned with presupposes that there is some kind of objective moral foundation uh, that, that needs to be there first. So I think this is a fundamental question. And of course, it's not mutually exclusive with discussing your question. That debate can take place tomorrow night. Uh, it, all of these questions can be explored at the university. This is an appropriate context for all issues to be raised. OK, point made. Dr. Craig. Okay, um, Dr. Craig, I believe in your opening statement you said that the finite doesn't exist apart from the mind. But if Say it again. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the infinite. If the infinite, you, you said the infinite doesn't exist apart from the mind, but if the infinite doesn't exist apart from the mind, how can God be infinite apart from the mind? Is it not mm -hmm. uh, highly possible for God to exist only in our minds? Right, very good question. Don't Christians or theists think that God is infinite? And if an actual infinite cannot exist, then how can God exist? It's important to understand that uh, infinity, when it's applied to God, isn't a mathematical concept. It's not a quantitative concept. When I'm speaking of an actual infinite, I'm talking about a set that has an infinite number of definite and discrete finite particulars, like the set of natural numbers, or the set of guests in a hotel, or a set of marbles, or baseball cards. But when people talk about the infinity of God, this isn't a quantitative concept. God isn't 
a set composed of an infinite number of definite and discrete finite parts. Rather, it's a qualitative notion when, they, when one speaks of God's infinity. It just means things like God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, eternal, necessary, uh, all-present, and all of those superlative attributes. In, uh, infinity is, in a sense, just the umbrella term for all of those superlative attributes, and none of those are quantitative in nature. Those are, are qualitative. So I don't think that my uh, argument against the existence of an actually infinite number of things uh, has any bearing on uh, this concept of the infinity of God. Hmm. Um, I don't think I have much to add to that. Yeah, I mean, the infinite that we were talking about there is the quantitative concept. Okay, question for Dr. Williamson. Hi, thank you for debate. I have a kind of stupid question. Uh, what is the, as a point of ETS, what is the cause of universe as a material object? What is the cause what of is, the universe yeah, as a material object? Yeah, who or what did make the universe? Do you have any answer for that one as ETS? Well, I might if I was a physicist, but I'm not. I mean, I think that's the question that I would simply defer to the physicist who's working on cosmology, like Stephen Hawking or somebody like that. Um, no, I mean, so part there is of... No, no answer for that one. Well, part of being an atheist is, to some extent, skepticism about some of the traditional metaphysical questions. So, I guess my stance would be that science is, is responsible for answering that sort of thing. Actually, science is just, as far as I know, is observation. Something is there, but, you know, that we observe and say that this one was, so we can see that. If I ask this question from Dr. Craig, would say that God, and God is unmaterial, so, that, I mean, that unmaterial can make this material. But as an ETS, you, you would, your answer is that I don't have any answer for the cause of universe. Well, as a philosopher, I don't think I do have an answer. It seems to me, as I point out, the scientists who do have the answer. And I think in terms of observation, science being observation, I think you're going to have to include observation of mathematics in that because it's the mathematics that seems to be what cosmology is based on. This question gives me an opportunity to, to uh, respond to the earlier points about the relationship between science and God. Uh, I want to again insist that I'm not suggesting that we postulate God as an explanatory scientific entity. Uh, that's not the way the argument works. Rather, as you suggested, science drives us back to the moment of creation. And on the standard Big Bang model, this is a singularity at which space and time begin uh, and all matter and energy come into being. This is the threshold at which science ends. And so I am willing to take hands off as a theist and say, scientists, you do your work. You find out how the universe began. And science drives back to that threshold. But then the philosophical question arises, where did the singularity come from? What brought the material universe into being? And there it seems to me it's entirely appropriate to say there is a metaphysical answer to that question, namely a cause beyond time and space that has brought the universe into being. And then I think you can deduce uh, some of the properties of this 
cause, and it, it, they turn out to be rather theologically significant. Okay, so we're sort of reaching the end of our time. How are you guys feeling in terms of questions? Keep going. Fine. Sure, we can go for a few more minutes. Okay. All right. Uh, I have a question from Thorvaldson Overflow. This is for Dr. Craig. Uh, what are some of the historical data that you cited in favor of a risen Jesus? Of what? A risen Jesus. Okay. Wow. You remember I mentioned three facts that are agreed upon by most historians who are studied the historical Jesus. The empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances, and the uh, very origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. What would be some of the underlying evidence that would support those? Well, in my written work, I list something like eight lines of evidence under various of these points. Um, for example, under the empty tomb. Uh, one would be the, that the empty tomb of Jesus is multiply attested in early independent sources. This is one of the most important criteria of historicity that a historian uses. If an event is attested in multiple independent early sources, then it is less likely that that event was just made up uh, because you have the, the independent testimony to it. And the empty tomb is attested in something like five or six very early independent sources. Um, secondly, the historicity of the burial narrative supports the historicity of the empty tomb. The burial account of Jesus by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb is widely recognized by historians as belonging to the portrait of the historical Jesus. But if the burial place of Jesus was known in Jerusalem to Jew and Christian alike, then a movement founded on the resurrection of a dead man would have been impossible in Jerusalem in the face of a tomb containing his corpse. So that the tomb must have been empty by the time the disciples began to proclaim uh, his resurrection from the dead. A third factor that's persuaded a great number of historians is the fact that the empty tomb's discovery is attributed to women. In a patriarchal first century Jewish society, the testimony of women was regarded as worthless. Therefore, if the empty tomb story were a later legendary account, male disciples like Peter and John would have certainly been made to be the discoverers of the empty tomb. The fact that it is women whose testimony is worthless, who are the discoverers of the empty tomb, is best explained by the fact that they were the discoverers of the empty tomb and the disciples, or rather the Gospels, record this awkward and embarrassing fact. Am I out of time? What? Yes? Okay, so I'd have to refer you to, again to the work on my website, reasonablefaith.org, where there's a lot more of this fascinating current study of the historical Jesus uh, relative to this event. Um, is it fair game to redirect a question back to Dr. Craig? Okay. Dr. Craig, this is something I've wondered about. I'm, I'm not a Bible scholar by a long shot. Are there any other documents besides the Bible that talk about Jesus? Yeah, actually there are. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth is referred to in Roman, Jewish, and extra-biblical Christian sources. Um, some of these are, have been cataloged in a book by R.T. France, spelled like the country France, called The Evidence for Jesus, or a more recent book, uh, The Jesus Legend, by Paul Eddy. And Greg Boyd has a nice chapter in which they discuss the extra-biblical uh, testimony to Jesus of Nazareth. Josephus, for example, the Jewish historian, has a very interesting 
uh, passage on Jesus and even talks about his brother James. He talks about John the Baptist. Many of the same people that appear in the biblical gospels are there in the pages of Josephus. So uh, it's quite amazing. We actually have more historical information about this relatively obscure man, this Galilean preacher named Jesus of Nazareth, than we do about many major figures of antiquity. So if you're interested, take a look at those books. The the reason I bring it up is simply I, in the course of preparing for this debate, I encountered the claims that there is no record of Jesus apart from... Who said that? I didn't even look at it. It struck me as quite a wild claim. I will say there are certain kooks out there writing today, especially on the Internet, people like G.A. Wells and others who make these radical claims like Jesus of Nazareth never existed and so forth. And uh, they are, they're completely rejected within the guild of professional historians and biblical scholars. Uh, and the book by Eddie and Boyd that I mentioned deals extensively with some of these fellows. But as I mentioned, the, the passage in Josephus, in Tacitus, the Syrian writer Marabar Serapion, uh, there are references in Jewish Talmud. Um, they're, they're discussed in the sources that I gave you. Thanks. I, I was rather struck by the claim, and it seemed quite wild to me. Wild to me. Okay, so we're thinking maybe three more questions. Does that sound good? Okay. Um, so I'm going to do one more from a card, and then just the people who are at the mic right now. So if you're waiting in line, sorry, there's no time. But this is an excellent topic that you could all discuss at a later time. So this is a uh, question for both of you, but we'll start with Dr. Williamson. And the question is, does objective morality actually exist? Well, once again, this is turning on the question of what counts as objective. And I'm troubled, troubled by Dr. Craig's apparent standard because it seems to me to invoke something like the thing in itself and that's a classic debacle for philosophy. I'm I'm still working on the thought that if human culture is a historical um, well what I'm trying to get at is human culture is transmitted through a historical process of tradition it seems to me that there's an internal standard of objectivity there which comes down to consensus reinformed as we transform our societies by by reason. Yeah, and as I said, I, I don't think consensus is enough for objectivity. Uh, think of the world, Second World War. Imagine that the Nazis had somehow managed to win the Second World War and had exterminated or brainwashed everybody who disagreed with them so that they succeeded in their genocide against the Jewish people and everyone agreed that the Holocaust was really a good thing. Uh, I want to say that objectively they would have been mistaken that the Holocaust was bad even if everybody thought that it was good. But if God doesn't exist, I can't see how objective morality could exist because all we would have is just consensus. We would be lost, it seems to me, in socio-cultural relativism. Um, but surely that's not right. I think that we sense that what the Nazis did was abhorrent. It was morally, it was morally wrong. And even if things had gone differently, if by some historical accident they had won the Second World War, that wouldn't have made what they did right. Morality doesn't hinge on the accidents of history. 
So for that reason, I do think objective morality exists, and it's for that reason I, that I think it needs to have a, a supernatural foundation. Okay, yeah. question for Dr. Craig. Uh, there's an issue that I perceive as severely problematic by any theist point uh, that involves the fact that every single person in this room, and in fact every single person on this planet, is an atheist many, 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 many times over in regards to the pantheon of gods that have come before. And the reality is, is that the people that believed in these gods um, believed it with every bit of fervency that anybody in here might believe in, in you know, the Abrahamic God. And there's a problem there because none of those gods are any less likely quite frankly none of them are any less rational they're all irrational the fact of the matter is the possibility of Zeus existing is no less likely than the possibility of Yahweh and I think it's a serious problem that I think has to be addressed and it never has been to my liking ever mm -hmm. it's easy to address um, definition of atheism remember I'm going to read again from the encyclopedia of philosophy According to the most usual definition, an atheist is a person who maintains that there is no God. That is, that the sentence God exists expresses a false proposition. Therefore, in no sense am I an atheist. Uh, just because I deny the existence of uh, Odin and Thor and Zeus and Hermes doesn't make me an atheist, because to be an atheist, you need to believe the proposition there is no God. And I semantics. believe there is a I'm God. I'm sorry, but that's semantics. Excuse me? That's semantics. No, You're sir, it's semantics. not. This, is a, this means that you believe a universally quantified statement. There is no such being as God. And, and uh, I don't believe that, because I do believe that there is a God. So, so you use a word other than atheist, it still comes to the same question. thing. No, what you, you have been led astray by... Uh, a common sort of internet infidel talking point that is given to atheists to use against theists to make it seem like the atheist claim is less radical, that everybody is an atheist about other gods. And that's simply not true because to be an atheist you have to believe there is no god at all. And I don't believe that, so in no sense am I an atheist. Now, you've simply asserted that uh, belief in Odin and Thor and Zeus and so forth is no more rational or irrational than belief in uh, classical theism. Uh, that's what this whole debate, in a sense, has been about. And, uh, and to show that, you would have to refute all of my arguments. Um, and you're welcome to, to do that. Uh, I think these arguments are, are sound arguments, and they're incompatible with the existence of uh, these deities that you mentioned. So I, I'm willing to stand on the evidence that I've presented. Let me readapt the um, atheist, non-theist distinction you made. I guess what you'd have to say is that you're a non-Zoroastrian, a non-Odinist, a non-etc., sure. et cetera. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem with um, the question is to do this kind of argument, we're stuck with technical definitions. And I think the notion of atheist that's being used in the question is actually non-technical. It's being used as a slur effectively against someone who fails to believe in the correct God. I believe the early Greeks and the early Christians hurled atheists back and forth at each other simply because they didn't happen to believe in each other's gods. But that's not the technical sense of atheists that we're attempting to work with here. Okay, and last question of the evening for Dr. Williamson. Dr. Wellington, um, from what I can understand, there are laws that govern our universe that seem to contradict the existence of the material world. Um, some of these laws include 
Oh, sorry. Some of these laws include, like, thermo- a couple of them that I can think of are law that says energy cannot be created or destroyed, and another one that says energy moves from a state of order to disorder. So I was just wondering, how do you explain these laws uh, from an atheistic viewpoint? Sorry, I didn't catch the first part of your question. Uh, just the, some laws of nature, like the laws of thermodynamics, that don't um, that that kind of tear down the existence of the material world alone, just standing by itself, without without God. So those would be those two laws that I mentioned. They tear down the universe. Well, just the idea that uh, energy cannot be created or destroyed, and the idea that energy moves from a state of order to disorder. Okay. Um, like chemical bonds are broken down and, and stuff like that, and you re-radiate heat and it goes off. So how do you explain um, those laws that govern us um, from an atheistic viewpoint? Honestly, I think I'm confused by the question. Um, I'm not sure why those particular laws that you're worried about. See, I mean, once again, um, as an atheist, I think I would want to defer to science to do the explaining of those laws. Sorry. Sorry. Once again, I wanted to defer to the scientists to do the explaining of those. But I suppose, speaking in terms of metaphysics or ontology, I think I'd attempt to refer them to, like, statistical regularities in the behavior of matter or something like that. I think the questioner raises a very interesting point with respect to the laws of thermodynamics. In tonight's debate, I've defended the beginning of the universe on the basis of the expansion of the universe. But there's a second empirical confirmation of the beginning of the universe that I've discussed in my written work based upon the second law of thermodynamics. And it basically goes like this. In enough time, given a finite amount of time, the universe will finally reach a state of heat death or thermodynamic equilibrium in which all life will be impossible and further significant change will not occur. If the universe has existed forever, for infinite time, why is it not now in a state of thermodynamic heat death? Uh, It seems to me that the only plausible way out of that question is to deny the assumption on which it's based, namely that the universe has existed for infinite time. What scientists today believe is that the low entropy of the universe was put in at the beginning of the universe. It was created with it. Uh, and then the second law of thermodynamics kicks in, and we're on our way now toward equilibrium. But the universe began to exist, uh, and therefore had uh, a finite past. So your relevant or reference to the laws is important and provides a second independent empirical confirmation of the absolute beginning of the universe, which shows that the universe is contingent and was brought into being by some kind of supernatural cause beyond time and space, which created and designed it.